0: This is your host Lawrence Fry and welcome to my third episode of No Footprints here on Riot Radio. Don't forget you can follow us on our social media at DSCI Riot Radio. Today I want to talk a little bit about science. Do you believe in science? That's something that I often hear is Surprisingly enough, a lot of people tell me that they don't believe in science or that they don't think the science knows, which is something that President Trump himself said when he was asked about climate change very recently in the news concerning the wildfires that are currently consuming the West Coast. Very concerning to have the leader of the United States presenting a disbelief for science, and today I want to delve a little bit into the topic of science and what makes science special, what makes science something that we can trust, or is it just as much a religion or something that we take by faith as anything else? First of all, concerning climate change, which I will continue to come back again and again to because that is the sake of our, I almost said TV show, of this radio show's theme, 80... we know that over 80% of scientists agree on climate change. It's most likely between 80 and 90%. A lot of people say 97%. So I've heard a lot of adults also tell me to be careful what I believe in, or that first it was global warming and now it's changed to climate uh, change, and that the science doesn't know, and that the science is, is changed its mind too many times. Uh, Concerning global warming and climate change, I would like to clear up that this myth, climate government actually puts it a very, uh, they said it very well, global warming refers only to the Earth's rising surface temperature, while climate change includes global, includes warming and the side effects of warming, like melting glaciers, heavy rainstorms, or more frequent growth. Said another way, global warming is one symptom of the much larger problem of human-caused climate change. And I talked more about the myths of climate change in my first episode, so feel free to go check that out. I am so excited to talk more about myths in the future, and there's so many of them. There are hundreds of different myths and arguments that people will bring to the table against climate change. But we know that the majority of climate scientists, definitely most scientists, are with the are on the side of climate change and that it is caused by humans. And another thing I would like to mention is that climate or scientists in general don't just stand up one day and go online and find a poll and check off a box of what they do believe and what they do not agree with. Scientists, it's, it's not a vote, they just stop arguing eventually. So it's not something that people really vote on, but it's something that they just stop arguing about. It's it's not like politics, even though science today has been very politicized, and we'll get into that a little bit later. I also have a lot of people asking me things like, what kind of books have you been reading? Or they think that I'm reading some kind of out there books. Or they tell me that they think that the controversy should be just as valid, uh, referring to things like creationism, or that they just in general don't believe in science, as if science is a faith. Again, what do you mean you don't believe in science? Is it something that we're blindly putting our faith in, or is it just as much a religion as any other religion? There's a quote from The Atlantic that I really thought was unique and put it really well about religion and science and they said it's better to get a cancer diagnosis from a radiologist than from a Ouija board. It's better to learn about the age of the universe from an astrophysicist than from a rabbi. The New England Journal of Medicine is more reliable source about vaccines than the actress Jenny McCarthy. These preferences are not ideolo- ideological. <laughs> We're not talking about Fox News versus The Nation. They are rational because the methods of science are demonstrably superior at getting at truths about the natural world. This is so true. And I think when we're looking at people like the president, unfortunately, we have to listen to the voices that are extremely educated on these matters, which I can tell you, unfortunately, that the President is not a scientist in this area. And when we're looking at authoritative figures in the media, it's very hard to discern fact from fiction nowadays. It's getting very meddled together. So I want to look at some differences between science and religion. First of all, religion, for example, creationism, which I really have a bone to pick with, is not falsifiable now this is this is just differences between science and religion in general another problem we can we can uh highlight this throughout creationism as well is that it has no predictive qualities only deductive qualities and i'm going to go into a little bit more depth about what these mean but something that i found very interesting is that i found out that there's no such thing as a scientific method which i felt was really Ingrained in my brain throughout grade school, you learn in science, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like most people learned this. At least I did. Was that you have the scientific method? Method. You have three steps: you observe, you hypothesize, you predict, and you test. And that's just the way it goes. That's just how science is done. But if you ask scientists, this is actually not the case. This is not how science is done. And It's basically saying the scientific method says that it doesn't matter how you found a theory, that's not a credible Way to find a theory. It's only credible if you have logical justification for it And even though we don't have in science one specific method for everything It doesn't mean that we don't have any methods. We have methods. They're just not one specific road to figuring out everything It's very messy. It's it's blind a lot of the time but this doesn't mean it's not real and what they used to do is they used to just categorize everything that wasn't or didn't have enough sensory data to validate it it was just categorized as metaphysics and even things like i was reading um somewhere even chemistry would barely make the cut if this was the case because we have things like transparency we have things like smell which are not very definable by sensory data in the scientific method. So does that mean that chemistry is not valid science? Things like the social sciences, what are we to make of those? What are we to make of all the things that we cannot just put our finger on? Literally. So this is something known as logical positivism. This is another way of saying logical empiricism collectively known as neopositivism, which is the notion that relies on the verification principle that says only statements that are observational, observational with logical proof have any importance or relevance to us. So if you basically, if you can't think, I'm sorry, if you can't touch it, you can't If you can't reproduce it again and again, you can't duplicate it and you can't feel it and see it and hear it, then it's not real and it's not important to us. So there is an attack on scientists from those who claim that there is a firm demarcation between science and non-science. And I want to explain a little bit more about what non-science is because I thought the phrases or the terms non-science and unscientificness the same thing but non-science is is what is something that is not observationable so you could not see it happen unscience is when you have evidence supporting or not supporting something and you are willfully ignoring it and going the other direction or continuing on with your previous belief that is unscientific pseudoscience on the other hand, is characterized, now this is from the definition from the Wikipedia, characterized by the contradictory, exaggerated or unfalsifiable claims, reliance on confirmation bias rather than rigorous attempts at refutation, lack of openness to evaluation by other experts, absence of systemic practices when developing hypotheses, continued adherence long after the pseudoscientific hypotheses have been experimentally discredited. And we see this a lot in things like creationism or climate change denialism. There are a lot of causes for suicide origins, and the Wikipedia goes on to describe these. Some of them are common cognitive errors from personal experience. There can be erroneous sensationalistic mass media coverage, sociocultural factors, or poor or erroneous science education. we're seeing this a lot today in private schools and home schools, depending on the curriculum. this is something that, especially when we're talking or concerning intelligent design, is that humans are very drawn to purpose and meaning. Student sciences such as intelligent design, which are still indoctrinated in thousands of faith schools worldwide, if not millions, I'm not sure how many there are, but. There are thousands, to say, have been thoroughly discredited. This this theory has been thoroughly discredited, but for some reason, it is still allowed in our private schools because the government, at least here in America, North America, is not allowed to regulate the religious material of private schools. Besides the Code of Human Rights, there's nothing that they can do. So that's the question I have for you is, what do you think? Do you think that children have fundamental rights to their education, to a factual education? Or do you believe that the parental right of their choice for their child would supersede that? And that's a very interesting conversation I like to have with people sometimes. I was watching a long video with Richard Jockins on YouTube. He has something posted there that you can find called Faith School's Menace. And at near the tail end of this uh, video, he was doing a really good interview with Dr. Deborah Kellerman, who is a leading child psychologist at Boston University. And what they were doing was looking at a study in schools that children are actually naturally predisposed to believe that origins are for a purpose, specifically predisposed I'm definitely saying that wrong, predisposed to specifically religious explanations. And in this experiment, Kellerman would pose the children questions like, why do you think rocks are pointy? And then she would give them a few options for answers. And she asked them which ones they would think would make more sense. And the children here would be like ages four to perhaps 10 by the looks of them. And she would give them the options of the answers like were The rock's pointy because little bits of stuff piled up on top of one another over a long time? Or do you think they're pointy because animals could scratch on them when they got itchy? She also asked them things like, Why do you think lakes are still? Do they have no waves so that animals can cool off in them without being washed away? Or do you think that they're still because no moving water ever ran into them? And I quote, she said, what you find is kids have a tendency clearly from about four years of age to endorse a sort of purpose-based explanation or to give you a purpose-based explanation for the origin of things. So the children in these scenarios, most all of the time, in this study would pick out the answer that was purpose-driven, that they would use the rocks to scratch themselves or that the lakes were still so that they could wash off from them. So Dawkins in the video replied, he said, well, I suppose the child is surrounded in the home by artifacts, telephones and televisions, all things which are actually designed for a purpose. And Kellerman responded, what we're finding right now is that children really start to do this at the point where they start to understand the artifacts or objects that have been made by someone for a purpose. And that might be orienting them towards in understanding that things are intentionally caused, intentionally designed. And then, so once they understand that, yes, they're surrounded by these objects that are intentionally in design, then sort of going, that's a quite a good way to understand everything. So that's something that also orients us towards believing that that's what is the origin of the world, that there is purpose and that there is intelligent design. That's something that we are, we are intuitive dualists. we, And we want to, we are very purpose-driven societies, we do things for reasons, we do things for goals, and we want our lives to have purpose, that's why everyone asks, what's the purpose of life? It's because we're so goal-oriented that to have no purpose or to not have a reason for doing something seems like such a troubling issue, when really... In my opinion, at least, we are just here to be human and to have this human experience. And I feel like we are all rushing around in some big rush to do something beyond ourselves. And we could just relax and, you know, that's that's my personal opinion. And something else I find interesting is that a lot of people think that science has this weakness where they think, again, that science perhaps has changed its mind too often, or that the data back here said this 20 years ago, and now they've made it this, or that science, that science has changed too much, or that it doesn't know what it's saying, and that this is a weakness of science. But actually, Is science, science's falsifiability, a weakness or strength? And I wanna talk about why it's a strength. It's actually the opposite. If you are thinking about a certain theory, which you believe is 100% true. For example, we're gonna go again with creationism. If you believe that creationism is true, and that that is the only way that is a hundred percent true it does not have any chance of being wrong then actually there's a problem this is not a strength it's actually a weakness if it's not falsifiable because no matter how much evidence you may find in the future against it you are still going to believe it's correct and that's the issue with creationism and intelligent design theory is that we have evidence we have so much overwhelming evidence that is not the case and we still bring in this non-science aspect to it where we willfully ignore the evidence where science is saying in the effect that scientific people will say you know this is what we think is true but you know what we may be wrong and we might find evidence that refutes what we previously believed and that's okay and i'm going to quote from lee mcintyre he wrote an amazing book called the scientific attitude and he says What will we make of fields claiming to be scientific but just don't measure up, such as intelligent design theory or denialism about climate change? Or of instances where scientists are fraudulent, like Andrew Wakefield's work purporting to show a link between vaccines and autism, there is still much to learn about these who have forsaken science. What is the intelligent design theorist not doing that scientists should do? Why are climate deniers justified in their high standard of skepticism? Why is it forbidden for scientists to rig their data, cherry pick it, and to try to fit the data to their theory if they want to succeed in scientific explanation? What should we do about those who simply reject the results of science, claiming there isn't enough evidence? We may be tempted to dismiss these people as irrational, but we do so at our peril. If we cannot provide a good account of why scientific explanations have a superior claim to believability, why should we accept them? It's not just that if we don't understand science, we cannot cultivate it elsewhere. We cannot even defend science where it's working. So what is distinctive about science? What makes it any better than pseudoscience claims? It is the scientific attitude towards empirical evidence, which is as hard to define as it is crucial. To do science, we must be willing to embrace a mindset that tells us that our prior beliefs ideologies, and wishes do not matter in deciding what can pass the test of comparison with the evidence. Non-science is not okay with this. It believes the claim to be absolutely factual, no matter what comes its way, and that the theory will never change. So when we're differentiating from non-science, we must ask, is our claim or statement made concerning the world able to be refuted in the future by some experience, even if we might not, have that experience ever in our lifetime. Sometimes I wonder if we should be differentiating between pseudoscience and science instead of science versus non-science. Again, non-science is the one that is non-observational. Non-observational, these would be demarcated very differently. It is a lot easier to demarcate between pseudoscience and regular science. Another difference between science and religion is that science is predictive, not just deductive, which I mentioned earlier. The Bible, for example, can attempt to explain origin stories. They can tell you what they think happened or why everything began, but they can't tell you the future. They can't tell you about how the world works or predict some scientific outcome let me ask you, what technology have we seen come from the Bible? What technology are we gonna build using the Bible and using this religion? We can't. We can't predict the weather with the Bible. We can't predict what the surgeon will hopefully get a favorable outcome from because realistically, what has been done with science and technology is that we know what's going to happen when, when we do something because we know, for example, that the surgeon will hopefully have a favorable outcome because he knows science helps him understand what's gonna happen when he does a certain thing. When he does a certain thing, this is gonna be the outcome. And we cannot use religion to do this. We cannot use religion to predict or create functioning technology. So climate science, unfortunately, has been extremely polarized and right now it's often viewed as a liberal agenda so how can we bridge those differences we have a lot more in common than we do in our differences and we are all in this together but right now we're becoming very divided on very crucial issues such as climate change which may be one of the biggest issues of our lifetimes I'm going to read from Rebecca Romsdal, She's an environmental science and policy professor at the University of North Dakota. Back in 2012, Romsdell's team surveyed more than 200 local governments across 10 predominantly Republican states in the Great Plains and found more than half were running initiatives that reduce humans' contribution to global warming, ranging from investing in city-operated green vehicles to the installation of efficient streetlights but policies were rarely framed as climate change programs. Instead, in an effort to attract more universal support, policies that mitigated climate change were branded as economic development, sustainability, resource management, or public health initiatives. They would focus on these common values that people want to have. Clean air, clean water, a healthy community. They want to save money on either their transportation costs or their household energy bills. They recognized within their community that using the term climate change was risking either a backlash or a lack of support that would make the policy either difficult to pass or impossible. And that is coming from PBS. PBS also talked further about a study that was showing that Republicans and I will just say that Even I recently was quite confused about Republicans and Democrats because those are American names. And for those of you who are Canadian and don't know a lot about American politics, Republicans are more on the conservative side or they're very far right. The Democrats are more like the liberals here. They're more on the left side of the political spectrum. So if You are perhaps an international student or someone who's not familiar with politics over here. Republicans are the conservative people, that's who we're talking about right now, very conservative, um, very not um, in favor of climate change in today's politics. So I will go on. PBS did further talk about a study saying that Republicans or conservatives were asked if they believe the international panel on climate change about um, human-caused climate change and that it had if they posed it as a question with the solutions having economic losses in order to mitigate this problem that they posed the conservatives were actually less likely to believe it but if they were posed the question in a way where they were giving a free market or capitalistic solution they were in favor of it. So this is also something known as solution aversion, which is defined by the behavioral public policy blog as something where people are motivated to deny problems and scientific evidence supporting the existence of problems when they are averse to the solutions. And it makes sense, but it actually didn't used to be so polarized. And actually, conservative leaders, at least in the states, led the charge on several big environmental reforms. Richard Nixon was the one who established the Environmental Protection Agency in the EPA. He was the one who established the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He signed the Clean Air Act, which is a huge act in the States, and the Marine Mammal Protection Act, George H.W. Bush helped pass the first na- the nation's first cap and trade legislation in an effort to fight acid rain and Theodore Roosevelt Roosevelt, sorry, protected more than 230 million acres of public land and established the United States Forest Service. So in closing, are we going to listen to the experts on this one? Are we going to allow this to continue to be such a politically divided issue with consequences that could threaten our very existence? I'm hoping that we can bridge the gap between our political divide, which is becoming more and more polarized. And I'm really trying to spread some more awareness and information on these issues and that we all we all want the same thing at the end of the day. We all want the same thing. We all want to be safe and healthy and happy. And we definitely take different measures to get down that road. But we do have scientific experts on this matter and we should all do our own research and we should all continue to be educating ourselves and following up on these matters. Um, and I will be continuing to talk more about climate change and sustainability and what else we can do in our day-to-day lives about climate change mitigation. And I know that this is a very polarized topic, it's very political, but I again just want to present you with the facts. These are the scientific facts, these are the philosophies that go into it, and this is what differentiates science from non-science and pseudoscience. And I really hope that you got some value out of today's episode and that I will see you again in episode four. I just love talking about this and I'm so glad that I can share what I've been learning over this past quarantine with you and that you can learn something too and maybe spread more awareness on your social media. And actually, don't forget to follow us on our social media at DSCI Riot Radio. Stay tuned for updates and I will see you guys in our next episode next week.